Good morning. My name is Miles Avalas. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Matthew. We are ending our sermon series called Safe and Holy. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading the Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 3, from the New American Standard Bible Version. Matthew 13, 3-9. As he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sour went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others found the good soil and yielded crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has his ears, let them hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. He who has ears, let, them, let him hear. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his home down and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Miles. You know what's so cute was um, if you look at the scripture reader's script, there's a little line that says, smile, look up, wait four seconds. (laughs) And he did that. So cute. (laughs) It is hard to be up here, folks. It is. It's quite a... uh, Good morning. I'm Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and today we conclude our sermon series, Safe and Holy. And today, uh, as a way of closing up shop here, I want to show you that the final test, okay, when it's all said and done, what it all comes down to for us mere mortals, if we are to be safe and holy, what that means is that other people experience us as being helpful. That's a mundane word. It's not a fancy word, but it's a powerful thing to be if you can be helpful. I regularly, all the time, believe that I'm being loving. My intentions, my sincerity, but a fair question on the receiving end of my love is, 
Is Peter actually being helpful? Are his gestures and his words helpful? And maybe in the immediate, there is some sense of relief and some uh, appearance of helpfulness. But how does, it test the st- uh, how does it stand the test of time? Is my influence in someone's life, how they're shaped, and the fruit they bear because of my presence in their life, is it positive? I think this is a fair question, and I think it's an essential question to be asked uh, of leaders and of organizations, of parents, of friends, of bosses. Are bosses helpful? Do-gooders, counselors, advice givers, teachers, and even of wars. All wars start out justified, but are they helpful? If you claim to be a loving person, the question on the other end of that love is helpfulness. Is it helpful? And I want to submit to you today that if you are a safe and holy person, you are a helpful person. I really like thinking about it this way. Because this question, it really helps me cut through the clutter. And it gets down to what really matters. And it helps me appreciate the difference in my life between activity and fruitfulness. I can be busy. I can be busy meeting all of life's needs. And there are addictions and injustices and demands and cries for help all around me. And I want to spend myself in a way that will actually matter and be helpful to other people and not just meet demands or satisfy my own anxieties about these things. Do you want to be helpful? Yeah, you do. We all want to be helpful. As a pastor, I'm sort of in the professional help uh, business And uh, it's easy for me to just have a busy, full schedule. But when I look back on the day, sometimes I haven't helped a single person. Your job too. Whatever it is you do. It's possible for your hours to be filled with things. But if you ask the question from the other end, who was actually helped by me? I think that's a fair question. Are your clients served by the work that you did? By your attitude? By your words? What was it like for them? I think it's a bit of an inconvenient truth that other people experience us contrary to how we intend Matthew 13, the chapter that we're studying today, it's the most extensive teaching of Jesus on his own teaching philosophy and methods. We don't get many glimpses into the other side of the curtain. Matthew 13 is the long, longest teaching on that. And in this chapter, we see a very deliberate Jesus who was very self-aware about how he accomplished his mission. There is a way that he related to people and he understood his audience and he understood human nature. 
And he understood that there really is no end to pleasing people or meeting their expectations or, or satisfying our own insecurities. And so he learned, he learned to be misunderstood. What was in front of him, what was immediate to him was not the uh, appearance of ministry or how he spent his time, but it really was genuinely, sincerely, over time, proving to be helpful to people. And in the end, he accomplished his mission. And what Matthew 13 teaches us is that the main way, and when he was relating to crowds, the only way he related to people was through parables. You know what parables are? Parables are stories with hidden meaning. And the key operative word there is hidden. Because the things Jesus said wasn't obvious immediately. And Jesus says his words are parables because they're like seeds. The, the life in a seed isn't apparent immediately. You have to sort of trust the process and you do all that you can, but at the end of the day, it has to fall out of your hands into the ground. And there it stands a chance of germinating and coming to life. But it takes time and process. And not everyone is ready. And this is what Jesus called years to hear. So Jesus sometimes pursued people, and sometimes he left people alone. Sometimes he intentionally offended people and insulted them, made fun of them, called them names even. It's a mystery how Jesus discerned how he was going to relate to people. But scripture tells us that he had tremendous insight into people's readiness. That the condition of the people mattered to Jesus. He didn't just have one haircut for everybody. Unlike my barber. (laughs) He understood the sower's small part in the whole scheme and process towards fruit bearing. Matthew 13 uh, is actually a much longer chapter. And I try to edit the... uh, reading for us so that it tells most of the story, but there is so much more in there. So my uh, encouragement to you would be to read it on your own. Uh, We would spend the whole sermon time reading that chapter. Uh, And so uh, if you were to read it from the angle that we are going to take today, I think it's going to be meaningful to you. I think it'd be worth your time. What I want to do today is I'm going to point out three key phrases and ideas from the chapter that hopefully uh, speak to the essence of what I think Jesus is teaching us today. Okay, three things. Uh, Ears to hear, eyes to see, and heart to believe. Okay, three things. Okay, first, ears to hear. I mean, begin with uh, uh, classic Peter hyperbole by saying, this is my most favorite quote of all time outside of scripture at this time in my life. (laughs) Okay? Let me read it for us. The colossal misunderstanding of our time is the assumption that insight will work with people who are unmotivated to change. 
Communication does not depend on syntax or eloquence or rhetoric or articulation, but on the emotional context in which the message is being heard. People can only hear you when they are moving towards you. And they are not likely to when your words are pursuing them. Even the choicest words lose their power when they are used to overpower. Attitudes are the real figures of speech. We're going to unpack that a little bit so you can um, relax. We'll get to the key idea here. Uh, For those of you who want to look this up, uh, it's by Edwin Friedman. Three weeks ago, I listened to all of my own sermons from July, August, September, and October. And I took meticulous notes on each of them. And I can tell you that it was a mostly painful exercise. It was also very educational. I learned several things. Here's the main realization that came to me about my own preaching uh, and also preachers in general. Preachers, you ready? Preachers tend to overfunction in their preaching by pleading, shouting, repeating, and in general, not giving the listener enough emotional space to have their own thoughts and move towards the sermon. Preachers tend to chase after those who don't have the ears to hear and chase away those who do. It has been said that great art forces the viewer to lean in and do at least 50% of the work. And my conclusion is that most sermons are not great art. Now, I think about it, I realize it's not just preachers who overfunction and chase people away, but we all do that. Communicators do that. Friends do that. Leaders do that. Have you ever been nagged? And then thought, oh my goodness, this is so helpful to me. Let me lean in. <laughs> Has that ever happened? Who can use a dose of it today? <laughs> How important is it in the communication dynamic that the listener be moving towards the speaker? Would you say it's everything? You know, we now know that raises don't create motivation and merely acknowledges and rewards employees. We know that nagging actually has an opposite effect and it just creates more friction and literally repels people emotionally because what nagging does is it takes responsibility away from the person. You are nagging to have responsibility. You are taking it. The key to an underfunctioner beginning to function at an appropriate level is the overfunctioner to decrease functioning. It's not up to the underfunctioner to initiate that process. Now, these are all very complicated ways to say what Jesus says here by saying, ears to hear. He says, if you don't have the ears to hear, you can't hear. It makes perfect common sense, doesn't it? If you don't have the ears to hear, you can't hear. And so if you want to communicate, what matters a ton is the emotional context between the speaker and the listener. 
that they want to learn. Now, two weeks ago, mostly as an experiment, I read most of my sermon from a manuscript. Anybody remember that? Um, I have a manuscript today, too, but I'm trying to preach a little bit more. Um, and I read from the manuscript rather than voc- because I wanted to, rather than vocally or emotionally trying to chase you all down, I wanted you to lean in. And I kid you not, many of you literally leaned in physically. I saw it because I spoke softly. I wasn't coming at you as much. I was more sort of scattering rather than trying to shove. I was letting the light shine rather than shining the light. And then after I did that, I spent the week gathering feedback from dozens of you. And uh, I want to report to you that the feedback that you gave me was mostly helpful. Not necessarily because of the depth of insight that you offered, but because I was asking. I was moving towards you. I was already motivated to learn. I asked the questions. Can someone moving away from you hear you? You know, I asked this question of myself, and again, this weekend, the answer is no. They cannot. And I listed four categories of ways that people move away from me. And as somebody who talks a lot, I see this often. So I think I have unique insight into this question. Okay, the first category is time. When they've become conscious of time, they begin moving away from me. Have you ever seen that? I see that all the time in meetings. Sometimes our meetings go over mostly because you're talking too much. And you look at your watch and you realize you're almost late for your next appointment. And then what happens? Is the conversation happening anymore? No, it's over. There's exiting behavior that I notice. You start packing up your keys and your hand is on your jacket. And you you start facing a little bit away from me. And you say things like, well, so what do you have going on for the rest of the day? That's a classic giveaway, by the way. If you start asking about future things, you're moving on. And I know the conversation is over. I don't go, oh, wait, wait, hold on. I got one more thing. No, I have no more thing. I got nothing left. So that's time, the first thing. Second uh, way that people move away from me is relevance. People have moved on when I'm answering questions they are no longer asking. Why they stopped asking or why they're not asking, that's many, many reasons. But they're not asking anymore. They don't care about my answers. Uh, uh, An author that I was talking to, uh, he put it this way. He says, people are always telling you about their features. They don't even, you don't even know what the needs are. They don't care. You don't care what the features are. Who cares about the size of the engine? You don't even need a car. Right? Okay, number three category is credibility. People are moving away from me when I've offended them or hurt them or they sense that I'm not being real anymore, right? And they start moving away. And the last category is energy. When my energy is low or I'm not energizing you anymore, but you sense that I'm leaning on you a little bit and I'm trying to take from you, then people start moving away because they're they're very uh, protective of their own energy level. 
So these are the four things, time, relevance, credibility, and energy. Uh, Henry Cloud, author and speaker and consultant, says that if he could eliminate two words from the English language, can you guess what they are? He says, if he could eliminate two words from the English language, they would be, you need. Because nothing causes people to start moving away faster than when you begin your sentence with, you know what you need? You know what you should? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Another way, according to Jesus, to think about the emotional context that lives between two converse, between a conversation, within a conversation, is in terms of the farming context. And things like soil, water, temperature, and sunlight, these things really, really matter. Uh, for example, I, I, two years ago, I built three gardening boxes for Susie, and I filled them with soil that one of you donated to me. It used to be 100% manure, and it sat in their barn for, for two whole years, and it had transformed into the world's best soil. Susie's zucchinis were jaw-droppingly large. And literally, many of you came to our house, saw our zucchinis, and your jaws dropped. I saw it. (gasps) That's what happened. You know why? Because soil matters. The sower of the seed can only do so much. The sower is very dependent on conditions beyond their control. Therefore, your words can only do so much. You can only do so much. There's a whole context, emotional context, to your attempts at loving somebody else. Is it crazy to say that love has limitations? Can love force change? What is the role of the one who wants to be helpful? If you want to be a helpful person, what's your job? And how do you do it? Do you have to chase people down who don't have the years to hear? Can you nag people into salvation? Can you keep talking till they just give up? Can you feel enough motivation for two people? Can you feel enough need for two people? Can you own enough responsibility for two people? Can your sense of responsibility over many lives be sufficient enough to cause growth in other people? How important is our own sense of motivation, need, and responsibility that we alone can bring to the table? If I cannot create motivation in you, it begs the question, well, what is motivation and where does it come from? From my own story of pursuing Susie and trying to convince her to marry me, um, I learned two things. Okay? The first is that persistence beats resistance. I should say it in my case, persistence beat resistance. Okay, here's a second and truer lesson that I learned. Persistence beat resistance only because she wanted to be beaten. Her choosing of me turns out matters. 
I cannot love for the both of us. I can't get invited to somebody else's wedding, let alone to their marriage. Their salvation, okay, other people's salvation is not your decision and your assertion, but it's their moving towards you, the emotional context they bring with them. They have to be able to own their own problems and be already motivated and make choices. And choices by virtue of what they are can only be made by them. The power of the seed, Jesus teaches, is in its ability to grow life from the inside out. Things like conformity and control is from the outside, but it can't break in. The seed, the the magic of the seed is that it brings forth fruit from the inside. That the life that we uh, can uh, see, it's it's an outward expression of what's already true and real on the inside. And so Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And he will hear if he is moving towards you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7 says this, So then neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. So be freed, my friends. The volume of your voice does not determine hearing, but the having of ears does. Ultimately, you can't be helpful if they don't want to be helped. The nature of relationship is invitation. And love is ultimately by invitation only. Second is the eyes to see. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now we read uh, this chapter. We start out reading about parables. And then it chapter ends with the unbelief of Jesus' own family members and townspeople. And here's what's happening. They see Jesus, but they actually aren't able to see him at all. They can only see themselves. How do we see that in this text? Well, they look at Jesus, and instead of seeing the Messiah, the Son of God, what they see is the carpenter's son, meaning they don't see his divinity. They just see his humanity. And they just say, well, I'm just a carpenter's son, and I don't have any special powers. He can't possibly have special powers because he's just a carpenter's son too. I have siblings. He has siblings. That means he's just human. He can't possibly have all of this wisdom and power flowing through him because I don't. So they put their limitations onto him. They projected onto him their own foibles and mundanity. And they missed his divinity altogether for his humanity. They were blind to who he really was. Greatness, I don't have it. He can't possibly have it. And the way the uh, scriptures put it is they took offense at him. In other words, they started moving away from him and not towards him. 
right? And this is the second problem, that when we think we see, we don't. We have all of these people coming to us, presenting their needs before us, but instead of actually seeing their needs and who they are and how they're wired and what the sense of timing is in their life, we say, you know what you need? You know you should. And we start projecting our own junk, our stuff, our anxieties and fears and agendas, our own need for salvation onto them and pretending we are trying to save them. We're really trying to save ourselves. If you have people in your life that you are to serve and love, take a second look. You may not be seeing them at all. Here's a connection I want to make for you. It says that because of their unbelief, they could not, Jesus could not do many miracles. You know what the miracle is? The miracle is life change, being truly helpful to somebody that their lives are changed. And in the passage, they couldn't see the miracles because they couldn't actually see Jesus. And what I want to tell you is, if you cannot see the people in your life for who they really are, then you're not going to see miracles in their life either. If you want to really be helpful to people, surprise, you got to see them, not you. The you needs and the you shoulds, it's making them invisible. It's making yourself large. It's projecting this giant life-size image of yourself onto the very people you are called to see. And on a deep level, you want to see them because you want to be helpful to them. If you want to be helpful to them, meet their needs and allow them to experience you in a way that's helpful to them, that causes them to move towards you and lean in towards you. Then you will help them and you will see miracles. Would your love look different if your own, your own salvation was not on the line? I think so. If I didn't bring my own needs to the table, there's going to be a purity to my love that's going to prove itself to be helpful. But if every time I'm trying to help somebody, my own needs are there, those needs get in the way. Here's two examples. One, I realize that I'm shocked and completely unimpressed how many times someone is sharing their story with me and in my mind I start thinking about me and my own life and what comes out of my mouth even though I try to control it but what comes out of my mouth is just my own story it just reminds me of me and it's so embarrassing to me when I think about it I'm so inattentive to other people, and so much more conscious about me. That's story one. Story two, this week, out of the blue, I got an email from the wife of a guy who used to be at a previous church of mine. 
And she said, Peter, I just want you to know, and these are quotes, that you were a crucial voice of formation in his life and that you mean the world to him. It was really nice to get that email. You know what my response was? I have no memory of helping him at all. I had to force myself to remember what he actually looked like. Another uh, woman that I was talking to, uh, this is uh, my mentor, Gwen, and uh, she said to me, it was her birthday this week, I was talking to her on the phone, and she said, Peter, you will never know, she said, what you mean to me. I have no idea why. I don't know who I am or what I do for her. As far as I can tell, she's the presence in my life. A question then is, question I have for you is, when was the last time you were truly helpful to somebody else? I was thinking about that for myself, and my answer is, I don't remember. And here's why I think I don't remember. Because true love is remarkably self-forgetful and unselfconscious. And you know those, uh, that time at the end of life when God will put his hand on my shoulder and say to me, well done, good and faithful servant? I think my response is going to be, when? Because when I've actually been a servant, I'm just being a servant. I'm not congratulating myself for doing my job. This is what the scripture teaches, that a true servant is a servant who's just being a servant, who's not crediting himself with anything beyond normal. There's nothing extraordinary about me being me. And that's why the times that I've actually been really helpful, I don't remember. Because I, never, I didn't take note of it. It was just so every day. And that's why when I got that email and I was really helpful to this guy, I have no memory of it. So I think the fact that you can't really answer when you've been helpful, it might be you haven't been helpful, but it might also be you have been really helpful and you won't know until God puts his hand on your shoulder and says, well done, good and faithful servant. How do we see miracles in our life? By seeing people. By seeing people. Third, hard to believe. And he spoke many things to them in parables. Among many traits uh, about Jesus and how he related to people, I think one of the big ones is Jesus' refusal to be rushed. We read many accounts of Jesus being pressured by those around him to do more or to move faster or be at more places at the same time. You know, we hear people say to him, come here and heal my servant. Or his brother say to him, go to Jerusalem like everybody else. Or they say, if you had only been here sooner. Or just say the word, just say something. Or his disciples asking him, why are you letting these little ones interrupt? We've got lots of things to do. People always wanted more and faster from Jesus. They were literally pressing in all around him, the scriptures say to us. 
But in the midst of all of that pressure to just get it done explicitly, I mean, they just wanted it from Jesus. He said, nope, I am not going to be a servant of your demands or your expectations or what you think is wise or good. I have my own sense of timing, and I'm going to move at what I would call parable speed. It's really frustrating for me to know that about God. Because sometimes I look back at the things that he's been working on in my life, and it's like my first memory of God working on that part of my character was like 10 years ago. And then I'm reminded he's still working on it. I'm shocked at his patience and his methodical, non-compromising nature when it comes to working in my life. He really, really cares and takes time to work on my character, my integrity, my spiritual formation as a person. You know, and, and for me, life consists of all these decisions I have to make and problems I have to solve. And there are pressing situations that are demanding me to go fast and hard. And, and God just is through all of it. He's slow. He speaks to me in parables. And parables, parables are an amazing thing because it's slow and steady. And it, it doesn't give in to... The, uh, the timeline that I have for it. It's like a seed, Jesus says, that gets planted deep in my heart. And the soil conditions in my heart have to be just right for it to germinate and begin to bear fruit and life in my life. And he's a, a very wise and steady farmer. He's got his finger on it. And I, I don't know what to make of that part of God's work in my life, but it's incredibly inefficient. And he just seems very, very slow. It says in Scripture that he only spoke to us, he only spoke to the crowds in parables. Apart from parables, he didn't teach anything else. And it's my, it's my understanding that God speaks to us in parables only. That he refuses to just give you the answer until you're asking the question. And for you to get to the place where you actually care about the question. And then you're actually asking real questions. The, the questions you should be asking. To get to that takes a lot of time. You know... Uh, when a large church around us falls and a leader falls, I'm surprised, but then I'm not. Because I realize God doesn't care about politics or optics. He doesn't even care about his reputation. One day, every knee will bow. Until that day, he slowly and methodically and without compromise cares about things like character. He doesn't care if organizations fail. That's a small price to pay for the work of God in people's lives. There was a time uh, in in the Gospels when Jesus was having a fundraising dinner uh, with probably a really potentially high donor. And this 
woman of ill repute interrupts the whole shebang, crashes the party, and breaks open a very expensive jar of perfume, pours it on Jesus' head, and starts washing his feet with her tears. And the disciples all huddle together because they can't make, make sense of this. And then they come out, okay, we'll ask him this. And they all look up and they say, Jesus, we have a question for you. And you know what the question was? Why this waste? And you know what Jesus says? Don't you know I'm being anointed for burial? It's not a waste. My dying for your sins is not a waste. I don't consider the shedding of my blood to be a waste because you are valuable to me. All of my blood is shed for you. All of my time is spent on you. I will spend the whole of your life pouring myself into the work I'm doing in you. The work in you is precious and of eternal value. It's never a waste. I'm happy to move at parable speed if it means I get to save you. Here's a question that I've been asking uh, of myself uh, regularly these days. It's kind of a fun question. Some of you may have heard me ask you this. Uh, the question is, where's the fire? In the last service, we actually had the Elkins who had a fire. But it's rare, right? And you ask yourself this question because chances are there's no fire. So why the rush? Where are you going? Are you that important? Slow down. God is important, and he's doing some very important work in you. I'm going to tell you an inconvenient truth, okay? If you want to be helpful to people, you have to hear them, you have to see them, and guess what else? You have to slow down. If you are not willing to slow down and move at parable speed in people's lives, you will not be useful to them. You will not be able to plant a good seed deep in the soil of their life and then have that seed bear fruit. You have to be willing to be inefficient. And it has to feel to you, because of who you are, like waste. And until it feels like waste, you're not taking enough time in people's lives. Because people are very complicated. Their stories are so convoluted. Their hearts are very intricate. And to be able to sow a seed in that kind of soil, it takes a lot of study and time. And if you're not willing to take the time and slow down and move at parable speed... It's going to be just rocky soil. It's not going to yield a crop. And all of that have been truly a waste. And that's why ultimately, love is costly. Because it's going to cost you your life. And this is the deep truth that I'd like you to walk away with. That love is costly. If you are going to love people, be a safe and holy presence in their life, and be genuinely 
uh, catalytic in the fruitfulness of their life. It's going to cost you your life. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I memorized this verse uh, in the King James. And it says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, unless a corn of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it bringeth forth much fruit. A parable is a seed, and if it is to grow in our lives, it has to take on a life of its own in the ground, out of our hands. Jesus is the seed, and he plants himself deep into our life and he dies so that he might grow in us and multiply his image in us that our lives might bear much fruit. He is the word of God planted in us, the son of God sent to die for our sins. Sacrificial love is very, very helpful. And in the death of Christ, we have received the greatest help for the greatest need in our life. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your precious work in me and in our lives. And I thank you that you are not rushed and you're not deluded by optics and politics, our own rebellion and you are steadily, slowly, faithfully working in us, waiting for us to have the years to hear and you genuinely see us as we are, and you love us just as we are, and because of that, you do miracles in our life. And you really take time to love us well. And though we may not realize it at this moment, but when we look back, we see the hand of God in our life. And I pray for us as a church, uh, corporately, and uh, individually, we might be truly helpful presences in people's lives. Do we know how to love them and love them well? Um, creating a space, emotional space, that allows them to move towards us by being safe and holy, that we can open our eyes and really see them uh, as you see them, and then die to ourselves by being slow and inefficient and moving at parable speed in their life. That we might see much fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. Do that work, we pray. And Jesus, we thank you for your work in our life, the, the blood of Christ shed for us, the seed of God coming to life through us. Love you for that. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.